0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. John chapter 20, verse 19. I'm going to read just a few verses to you. We'll loop back in 22 in just a moment. John chapter 20. And when it was evening on that same first day of the week, that's Sunday, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We have been skipping around with John. We have been in John for 25 sermons now, 25 weeks. We have been looking at the gospel of John and we were doing pretty well, going right in order up until chapter 15. We got to chapter 15, the next week was Easter, so we jumped all the way to the beginning of chapter 20 and then we went back to 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Now, today, the knot gets unwound, it gets untied. And so we're gonna pick back up at the end there of where we left off the last time we were in chapter 20. Just wanna make sure everybody is tracking, everybody is following along with what is going on. Mary there on that Easter morning, Jesus had been murdered a couple days before, Mary goes to visit the tomb. She finds that it's empty, Jesus has resurrected. She goes back, to his disciples, she got Peter and John. John beats Peter back, remember he told us twice. They get back there, they look in, and uh, it, it's, it's empty, as they thought. Mary stays behind, has a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. And then later on that evening, we find the disciples, friends, family, other uh, people that were followers of Jesus locked in a room at night, afraid. That's where the story picks up. And to be honest with you, the fear is not that uh, crazy. It's not unexpected. Just a couple of days ago, like I said, they killed Jesus. And if they kill Jesus, then of course they're going to kill one of them. At least that was their fear. And so they locked themselves in a room, kind of stuck, not wanting to go outside of the room, guard the door, don't make a lot of noise because they're afraid of what might befall them, what might uh, get them. Just this week, I wrote the introduction to my uh, Paper book thing. Uh, I have to write this really long uh, paper that we call a book uh, for my doctorate. And I've completed the body of the work uh, a while ago. I've been working on this for several months. I completed the body of it. The editors got it, everybody, all that kind of stuff. But just this week, I wrote the introduction. And you might say, well, isn't that backwards? Don't you write the introduction, then you write the content, and then you write the conclusion? No. I mean, yes, you're right, but um, it's not the way that I did it. I wrote the inside, and then I wrote the beginning and the ending. And I did that because, to be honest with you, because I was scared. I, writing the chapters, the in-between stuff, wasn't anything uh, really all that difficult because it's kind of like writing a sermon, and I do that every week. That wasn't the problem. I got all scared stuck when it came to the introduction. I just couldn't make myself write the introduction in my mind. I was nervous that this was the first thing that people would read. Like the professors, the school, uh, if it were to be published, that's the first chapter. And so this is uh, make or break. It, you know, you don't read, you don't keep reading if the beginning is horrible. So I just couldn't, make, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to start. How do you start writing a book, you know? So I, I, I just got stuck. I scheduled a conversation with my advisor and he walked me through it, told me uh, that my other writing was good. He told me that this was gonna be great. And then he told me how to do it, what needs to be in it, what doesn't need to be in it. And he exactly outlined it and said, this is how you do it. And so that's exactly what I did. A couple of weeks after, when I got up there energy, I wrote the introduction to what I had already written, all because of my fear. And I'm sure that you've felt the same way before. At work or in a relationship, have you ever been afraid of something and it immobilizes you? It makes you to where you can't speak or act. You're too afraid to go, too afraid to stay. You don't know what the future holds, what the uh, repercussions or the consequences of the actions would be. I wrote down a few of these possibilities. You could be afraid of failure. You know, you're so afraid that you might not succeed that you don't even try. You're afraid of rejection afraid of change. Things could change and become chaotic. Maybe somewhere along the way somebody told you you were not good enough at something and so you're just constantly afraid that whatever you try to do you won't be good enough. You're afraid of future pain, financial loss, instability. All of these things have the ability, even though you can't see them, and nearly All of them haven't happened yet. Whenever you're confronted by them, they they haven't happened yet. But they have this ability to stop you in your tracks, to keep you from going forward. You're, You're scared, stuck. That's what we do. That's what they did. The Bible says that they were locked in a room, afraid of the Jews, unable to move forward. Like I said, it's individual, but it can also be corporate. Our faith community sometimes can look a lot like these early disciples where we get together in a room, we shut the door, we make sure all the good guys are on this side and the bad guys are on that side. And we sit in that room afraid of all the bad people and the thoughts and the philosophies and the things that will will get us or get our children. And that's not to say that there aren't valid fears out there. The Jews really did kill Jesus. It's just that none of us like to be there. Nobody wakes up or realizes or has a counseling session or a, or, or a phone conversation with a friend and realizes that they are scared stuck, that they are immobilized by their fear and decide this is fine. Nobody does that. Nobody wants to be constricted by their own irrational fears. So in this text, Jesus steps into their fortress of fear, speaks to them, gives them two helps, two encouragements he gives them these two things and my theory or my assumption is that by listening to them, by looking in watching this then they will they're going to help you and i as well all right so let's pray and then we'll break apart the text and study it god thank you for this encouragement i pray for those who did bring fears in this morning i know that it is more common than not so god wherever they have locked those fears up whether it's their mind their hearts where they can't step forward, they can't speak, they can't make the decision, they can't act, I pray that you would step into that space like you do, past the locked doors with encouragement, with peace, and who you are, what you did, and what it is that we need to do. God, help our minds to hear and understand and then motivate us, body, soul, and spirit, to act. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so a little, little, little pep talk here. I told both of the services this already, so I'm going to tell you two, um, primarily because I feel like everything should be even. At the 8 o'clock, I told them that they are, uh, we adjust according to the 8 o'clock. This is, this, this is uh, secrets behind the curtain. We adjust things like songs, music, what we say, what I say. For instance, if, if I tell a joke in the 8 o'clock and it doesn't land, then you don't hear it <laughs> um, because because it hurt my feelings. So I'm not going to do that. But one of the, the big things is not so much the joking part or the stories. It's the points to the sermon. Sometimes people will walk up to me and, uh, you know, like, hey, you remember that a couple of years ago when you told that story about your kid? And I'm like, no, I don't really remember. What was the text? What was the story in the Bible? And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't remember that. You know, and so um, that may be the wrong you know, the wrong ephesus on the syllable, you know? So we want you to know the, the story in the Bible. And so here's what I encourage the last two services to do. And it's been really interesting. I'm asking you to, uh, if you've got to write it down, write it down or not in your mind, whatever it is, I'm about to preach a sermon with two points. There's just two points. And after the service, if you feel like it, come by and tell me what those two points are, okay? Um, I've, I've heard Dozens and dozens of points, and all of them would have been valid, um, but they weren't my points. And so, it's really, it's really interesting to see what it is you think I'm saying. Okay, so let's try it. Let's try it here in just, in just a minute. All right. So, Mary, uh, Mary, and the disciples—they are in this room with these doors locked, and you really got to picture it. This isn't just 11 people, just the 11 disciples. Uh, minus Judas. This is a lot of people, a lot of family and friends. This has happened throughout the day. The rumors have spread. People are talking in their normal conversations. They let their mom know and their cousins know and that sort of stuff. They find out the room in which they are all gathering and they all begin to gather in that way. And, and in my mind, there's sort of, um, there's like uh, the doors are locked and they have a secret knock or a, a secret password. Like you got to knock a certain way and then somebody's like, what's the best word? And you say, uh, fish sticks. And then they let you in, that sort of stuff or else they're not going to let you in because they're afraid of the juice. They're afraid to be killed by the same enemy that has already um, you know, killed Jesus. And in this, Jesus steps into that moment. We read the Bible so often that we sometimes o- overlook the miracles. We we. we We're so familiar with the things that Jesus does that we just look right past some of the greatest things that he does. The doors are locked. Jesus doesn't say the password. He doesn't do the secret knock. He just appears in the midst of them. He's there in the middle of them. And it teaches us a couple of things. These aren't the points. It just kind of sets the groundwork for what we're about to hear. You cannot keep Jesus out. All right? Jesus is where Jesus is. And... He will meet you where you are. This is one of the most encouraging aspects of this story. Nowhere do you see Jesus chastising them or, or uh, you know, getting all mad at them because they're afraid. He doesn't appear and he's like, hey, how many times did I tell you, stop being scared? That's not what he says. He appears right where they are, meets them right in the midst of their fear in the locked room and he says, peace. Peace is the message that he brings to them. And so the first point, In this time where Jesus walks into their fortress of fear, is what I'm calling it, as he walks into the space that they've got all locked away from the world and the dangers and the threats, Jesus speaks two words, two words of peace. The first one is peace in who he is and what he did. Jesus speaks a word of peace in who he is and what he did. Look back at 19 and 20. Jesus says, peace be with you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I can imagine that some of them were startled when Jesus just appears and he says, Peace, you know. Their anxiety is already high, they're a little afraid. There's rumors, every noise, when the wind blows, they think maybe that's a soldier, maybe somebody is going to get them. And so their anxiety is really high. Can you imagine this room filled with people that are sort of whispering, there's two or three conversations and they're all talking about the death of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the middle of them and he says, peace. How many of you are, the, you're, you would, you're, you're what we would call jumpy, you scare easy. Anybody wanna raise your hand so we can all know who to prank later? So those are the ones that will scream the loudest. I imagine out of the disciples, there's one of them, a couple of them that are just startled easily. And if you read back, Jesus has this moment in which, uh, you know, he walks on the water and he gets to the boat and uh, you've got 12 grown men screaming high pitched screaming that it's a ghost it's a ghost that sort of stuff and and Jesus seems to enjoy this um, aspect of his miraculous being that he can startle people and so he got there and he scares them maybe it's Bartholomew the one that screams the loudest or something like that i pick on Bartholomew because i like saying Bartholomew and so at this moment the door is locked and Jesus appears and they all scream, he says, peace. And Bartholomew's like, you have got to stop doing that. You're going to give me a heart attack. That's the kind of thing that Bartholomew did. And what Jesus says in the midst of that is peace. Peace be with you. Now, here's the deal. This is a normal greeting. This is just the way that they would greet one another. Somebody would walk up to one of them and say, peace be with you. And the other one would respond, and with you be peace. That's the way it does. Like in our culture, you walk up and say, hey, what's up? And the other person goes, nothing. What's up with you? That kind of thing. That's just a normal way to address one. another. this is the normal way that they would have addressed each other. Peace be with you. With you be peace. Let's try it. You want to try it? Or we're going to anyways. I'll say peace be with you. And you say with you be peace. Peace be with you. Peace. Perfect. You did so much better than 930. Peace be with you. It's not unusual that he said he says that in fact it's totally expected here's what is unusual he says it twice that's not normal and so what we're going to do is use that we're going to look at the first time that he says it peace be with you and then he shows him his hands and his side and then we'll look at the second one peace be with you as the father sent me so i send you there are three other times in the gospel of john in which jesus speaks about peace Three other times. One other one which is coming up in the very next story is a greeting like this one, peace be with you. The other two times is not a greeting. It's about the topic of peace. John 14 verse 27 says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not or don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. John 16 verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You have suffering in this world, be courageous. I have conquered the world. In both cases, Jesus is talking about a particular kind of peace. He's not talking about world peace or global peace, he's not talking about like interrelational or, or at the office or in your marriage peace. In both accounts, Jesus is referring to internal peace the sort of peace that you have in your heart and in your mind, when there's shalom, when all things are in order. This is what Jesus is about. That's why he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's why he says, be courageous. This is a particular kind of peace. It's internal, it's personal, it's individual. When, when I covered John chapter 14 a couple of weeks ago, this was the key verse. This was one of the key verses. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's online. If you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to. And in that, you remember, I said that this word troubled is similar to the way that we would describe bodies of water when a storm is blowing in. You can kayak to the middle of Beaver Fork Lake and sometimes it'll be, uh, it'll be still as glass. Looks like you're just floating there on a piece of glass. And then other times as the is coming in, it'll be all mad and tumultuous. The water's dark and angry, that sort of thing. That kind of distinction is what Jesus is saying. And remember, he's not mad. He's not chastising them because they found themselves in a space of fear. There's a valid threat. He's just encouraging them not to stay there. Don't stay troubled. Don't stay fearful. When you are fearful and tempted to lock yourself in a room, then here's what I offer to you. I offer you peace. But what kind of, how, how does he tie that piece together? He says, peace be with you. And then he showed him his hands and his side. This really kind of indicates the sort of peace. It is a peace based on who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Who Jesus is and what he accomplished. When Jesus shows his hands and his scars, remember that they all would have, I assume, thought he was a ghost. He appears in the middle of the room. That's what they thought when he was walking on water. It's what they often yelled in the New Testament when they didn't understand something. It must have been a ghost. So they would have assumed Jesus was a ghost. Also remember that those who were next to the cross just a few days earlier saw Jesus bloodied and and bruised and beaten, a crown of thorns pressed into his skin, the skin ripped off of his back. He was unrecognizable. And now he stands in the midst of them healed, perfected, and he holds out his hands to identify with the scars whether they were in his palms or in his wrist, the scars to identify who he is. This isn't a ghost, this is the king. They tried to kill the king, but the king has returned. It's not just a mark of identity, but also this badge of honor, this badge of honor. He told them that he would beat death. He told them that in three days, you could tear down this temple and he would rebuild the thing. What he's saying is, I am who I am, And I did what I said I would do. That's the marker. When Jesus steps in the middle of their fear, what has them scared, stuck with all the doors locked around them, he steps in the middle, not with a things are going to work out, not with a you're stronger than this, not with a keep your chin up, what he steps in the middle of the room and says, I am who I am and I did what I said I would. It is a peace rooted in Jesus, rooted in who he is and what he has accomplished. This is how he combats our fear. Tim Keller was a great American pastor. In fact, in my opinion, one of the very best pastors this country has ever had. He passed away this last week after three years of battling pancreatic cancer. Three years ago, three years ago, just a couple of months after he was diagnosed This is what he tweeted. The peace of God is not the absence of fear. It, in fact, is his presence. The peace of God is not not being afraid of things. It's being with Jesus when things get scary. That's how we find peace. So Jesus says, don't stay afraid. Have peace because of who I am and what I have accomplished. But then he speaks another word, a second word. And this is not peace in what Jesus has done, this is peace in what they will do. The first one is peace in what he has done and who he is. The second one is peace in what they will do or the mission. Look at verse 21, Jesus said to them again, "'Peace be with you. "'As the Father has sent me, I also send you.'" Building off of the idea of do not stay afraid, he gave them peace that is mobilized. He gives it legs, actions, unstuck. Keep in mind that they were all huddled together, locked inside of a room, afraid of the enemy on the outside. And Jesus steps into that space and tells them, you don't need to be all gathered in fear. You need to be scattered on mission. He reminds them that they are sent. He's already told them this. They've already practiced it. And he's just reminding them that they are sent on a mission and that God is a sending God. We really have to get that. You need to write that down. You need to put that in your heart. And remember that God is a sending God. God is always sending people into some sort of mission. From the very first pages of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is what God does. God sent Abraham, Abram, to a land that he did not know. God sent Moses back to a land he did know and that he had ran from. He sent Esther to go before the king to speak on behalf of the Jews. Ruth with her mother-in-law and back to the field and back to Boaz. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all the rest to go and speak to the people. Jesus into the world, the disciples into the nations and the servants into the highways and the byways to compel all of the people to come and to feast with the king. Jesus, God is always sending people it's what he does it's a huge characteristic of the way he is but we don't obey we have a tendency to just sit we like to get in our little clusters with our people and our communities and the parts of our communities that we like we drive our cars into our garages shut the doors and live our lives but Jesus has sent us into those very same communities. God is sending us into the lives of those peoples and our neighbors. Jesus says, just as, just like I was sent, so I am sending you. And so for any Jesus follower, the question's gonna be asked, and you need to answer this, is how did Jesus go about living out his mission? If we are to go the same way that he went, How did he go? I wrote a few of these down. I'll share them with you. They're in no particular order. He was humble. He served others. He went to the sick and the hurting and the outcasts. He wasn't afraid to be associated with those that disagreed with him philosophically or theologically. When the Pharisees invited him to dinner, he went to dinner. Jesus knew what he believed and he taught what scriptures taught. He had a message of hope and repentance and belief. This is how Jesus was sent and in the same manner he was sending them and by extension he is sending us. This is what we do. Instead of gathering in fear we scatter on a mission. And it's helpful. One of the worst things you can do when you find yourself scared stuck is to just stay stuck. Is to not move, to not act. In fact, I am convinced that our lives as Christians, as Jesus followers, are so dominated by fear simply because we are not living on mission. You were recreated, you were reformed, redeemed in order to go on mission and when you do not fulfill your calling, you are malfunctioning and it breaks. We are made to be on mission, to share the good news and the gospel with other people at this point as jesus has said peace be with you in what i've done and who i am and peace be with you in what you're going to do jesus does something awkward look at verse 22 it says and after saying this he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit breathing on people is not something we do right does everybody agree with that you ought not breathe on other people and even though he is jesus christ the perfect messiah it still just seems weird it's like no let's not but the word there means to forcefully blow breath on another person it's just it's just uncomfortable we didn't do that uh we weren't cool with that before covid and now if you sneeze in public you feel like you're going to be stoned And so when we read a passage like this, the illustration, the meaning, the the message behind it is completely missed, particularly because we don't speak the original language. And this could be a sermon all by itself, but what Jesus is doing is sort of like the Old Testament prophets when they would use some sort of physical illustration. Sometimes they would build a little city and then stomp it out and say, God's going to destroy you, you know, that kind of thing. Jesus is using an illustration. And in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word for spirit carries um, a complexity to it, um, a, a beauty to the, the, like the robust nature of the word. In fact, the word in the Old Testament and in the New Testament can be translated in a number of ways. It can be translated as wind or as breath or as spirit. Those would be the three most popular. You see this in the creation account when God kneels down and he breathes the breath of life into Adam and he becomes a living soul, breath. You see this in Ezekiel chapter 37 when the, when the wind of God blows across the valley of dry bones and they stand up and, and tendons and flesh and muscle all come on them and they become a living army, wind. You see this in John chapter three when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, you don't know where the wind blows, it goes where it wants to go. And that which is born of spirit is spirit." spirits this whole concept what jesus is instructing them what he's teaching them what he's trying to illustrate for them is what would happen at pentecost what jesus is saying is that he was going to send the third part or uh, the third person of the trinity and it is that spirit, it is Holy Spirit that gives life it animates and forms people and sends them on mission. This is what Jesus is saying will happen for them, has happened for us. God's spirit empowers God's people to not remain fearful, but to be on mission. It's a beautiful message. If you just sum it all up, if you put it all back together... Jesus steps into their fear, into their place that they've got all locked off because they're afraid of the threats. And he tells them, have peace because of who I am and what I've done and what it is you need to do. It's a great message. My only question with it is, how do you do that? Like, that sounds awesome. But how do you do that? When your heart is all upset, when your mind is racing, do I just like step back? Do I say to myself, do I write it? Do I say it out loud? Be not troubled heart. Is that how it works? Does it work? Is, have you done that? Does it work? Am I saying it right? Does it need to be King James or something? What's, what's going on? Why and how do I do this? And so what I wanna pass on to you is, is this application point. It's uh, something that I picked up from a pastor over in Oklahoma. His name's Craig Rochelle, and I think this is really helpful. What he says to do, what I think is a good thing to do, what I have done and has been fruitful in my own life, is to first begin by identifying the fear. Just write it down. Say what it is. I do this myself. In my journal, I write down the fear. This is exactly what it is that I am afraid of. Something that I remember my mom saying to me when I was a kid, when I get all anxious and upset and scared about things, she'd say, if everything goes as bad as you think it might, what would happen? What's the worst that could happen is what, you know, another way to say it. What are you actually afraid of? Let me encourage you in this way. Sometimes you'll write down things like, oh, I'm afraid of losing my job. That's not what you're actually afraid of. What you're afraid of is um, your, your 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 kids would be embarrassed, or that your wife would be disappointed, that you wouldn't be able to provide these actually these real fears. I'm afraid of being alone or isolated or rejected. I'm afraid of um, being seen as a failure. Those sort of things. You identify. What are you actually afraid of? Because that's not where you spend your time. You want to identify it. The second thing that you need to do is to speak truth to it. Say what is reality. Not your truth, God's truth. Because there's no such thing as your truth. Speak the truth to it. This is what Jesus does. When he appears there and they are locked up, afraid of the Jews, Jesus essentially says, these Jews, the ones that killed me, you're afraid that they'll what? Kill you? Didn't work. He speaks the truth to it. He shows the truth to it. And so when you are all upset, when you're all worried about being unloved, rejected, isolated, whatever it is, because of whatever baggage you carry, whatever scars you have, Jesus says back to you, you are not unloved, I love you. You are not rejected, I accept you. You see, identify the fear And speak Jesus, God's truth to it. And then third, replace it. Replace it. Again, the worst thing you can do when you're stuck scared is just stay stuck. Move. Change directions. Do what you know to do. One of my favorite pastoral pieces of advice is, if you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. If you don't know what to do in the circumstances, just do the things you know that you're supposed to be doing do those things because see listen this happened to me this week Tuesday morning I woke up at two in the morning my brain did I didn't my brain did I still wanted to sleep and instantly without any effort on my own my mind just filled with anxieties fears I was um, reconversing conversations I was pre-arguing arguments y'all ever done that You ever pre-argue the argument? Win every one of those. so good at pre-arguing, you know? I did that. And I just laid there and I tossed and I turned and I couldn't stop thinking. I'd get mad at myself. Go to sleep. It was too late to take a melatonin, you know? And so go to sleep. And I wouldn't. My mind just... And so finally, you know, I identified what it was that I was afraid of. I spoke the truth to it. And then I told my mind, if you're not going to go to sleep, I'm going to put you to work. And so I got up, went out into the living room and started writing this sermon at three o'clock on Tuesday morning. I punished my brain for not sleeping. I've slept every night since then. Same thing I would encourage you to do, not punish your brain, but identify the fear, speak gospel truth to it. It's not just the way that you feel. It's not something you saw cross-stitched on a pillow before. It's what the Bible says and then replace it with what you know to do. I spent all week trying to think of an illustration, some way that I could illustrate this. And maybe you don't need this. Maybe you're, you're perfectly good with this. You don't need to have any illustrations. You followed right along. But yesterday, it came to me. This is the way that I would end this. Yesterday, as him, my son was driving me around town. My 14-year-old was navigating the mean streets of Conway, Arkansas. And listen, he's a great driver. He really is. I'm not ever really worried about it. His driving. It's just that not everybody on these streets is as good a driver as my 14 year old. And I mean that, every bit of those words that I said. Not everybody that drives in Conway is as good a driver as my 14 year old driver. And the problem is, as you all know, the biggest hazard in Conway are those roundabouts. When people approach them, they either approach them, uh, or, you know, if it's a problem, they'll approach them either unsure or worse. Afraid, They will stop, and this actually becomes a problem. You cannot stop. The lack of movement in some cases becomes the last thing that needs to happen. So they just freeze. They lock up. They're scared stuck. It's bad when they won't enter the roundabout because of fear. And it's just as bad when they won't exit the roundabout because of fear. You hear what I'm saying? This is what fear does. It immobilizes you. You can't go forward and you just run in circles. That's what fear does. That's what fear can do. You're afraid to go, you're afraid to stay, you're afraid to fail, you're afraid of what others might say or think or do. It gets dangerous, but you know the answer to it. All of you know the answer. Anybody who's ever taught anybody to drive in Conway or the area knows the answer. Anybody that's driven in Conway, you know the answer, right? Yield and go. It's just that simple. Yield and go. So I don't know what's got you all locked up, but whatever it is, I'm telling you, the answer is the same. Yield to Christ and go do what you're supposed to be doing. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday.